0: Let's take our Bibles, turn over to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. Let me see if I, I think I took those out of my, I had a couple of jokes for you, but I I must have left them in my office. I know, you're bumming, aren't you? Yeah, but see, you know what, these jokes were for smart people. I mean, these jokes, you had to be really smart to get these jokes. And so I I shared them in the, I shared them in the singles class and they were like looking at me like, had no clue what was going on. I had to explain a couple of them, you know. Literally, I mean, these are, these are jokes for smart people. So I don't know if you'd have got them or not. Now, I'm, I know a lot of you are pretty smart, but, you know, I got every one of them. But, you know, the singles were struggling, you know what I mean? So I don't know. I, you know, I don't have them on me. I, re, I really don't. Um, I thought I did. I wasn't very smart, was it? All right, anyway, First John chapter 2. Maybe I'll share those with you next week. We'll see how it goes, all right? It's 1 John chapter 2. I'll tell you what, come back Wednesday. No, okay, so anyway. Next week, maybe I'll give them to you. We'll see what's going on. I know the young, the young people were very, uh, very encouraged by those, although they, they learned a lot about themselves. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 here. <clears throat> a familiar passage and one that we've preached out of before, one that you've probably heard preached a number of times if you've been in church any length of time. Uh, But it simply says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that once again you'd speak to us through your word. We are needy tonight, and we just pray in these next few moments as we Look forward to our baptism tonight as we are excited to, to just recognize that folks are still coming to Christ, that, Lord, Your Word is still true, and that, Father, You haven't changed a bit. Lord, we just ask that You'd bless us now in the Word. May You continue to con- confirm in our hearts the, the reality of the Word. May our faith in it be stronger than ever. May our desire to please You and to live our life according to it be greater, Again, we need you. Bless these that have gathered, and we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, when I read this particular passage, and I consider the warning that it's being, that's being given here, I can't help, in my mind at least, to kind of go back to the Garden of Eden. You know, there stood Adam and Eve, and both of them as innocent as humans have ever been. And notice I didn't say perfect, because in reality, they weren't. They weren't proven yet. They were innocent. We'd find out later, unfortunately, that, well, they would make a bad decision. and It would lead them to a bad place. But again, it seems to me that God had given them every opportunity to succeed. And over in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, the Lord said, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. That seems like quite a few. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now the immediate reaction, I got to believe, was probably pretty positive. I mean, here's God telling them that, you know, feel free to eat of every tree of the garden. You're welcome to have of any one you like, except that one the rest are, are good to go. There's only one that's off limit. And at first, I'm sure that didn't seem like a problem at all. Matter of fact, they probably thought, wow, we've got so many trees to go through. We'll have a, it'll, be, it'll be a lifetime before we'd ever even consider eating of that tree. But after the tempter stepped in and focused their attention on that one tree they were forbidden to eat, all that changed. He suddenly convinced them, at least the woman to start with, that God was withholding the best he had from her. The best he had for them. He somehow convinced them that the good was the part he was holding back. Oh, the rest was was good, but the best of it, that one thing. Why would God withhold that from you? Boy, he convinced her, didn't he, that she, he was holding something back that she desperately needed and that she would certainly want. And so ultimately, he convinced her to take of the fruit that was forbidden. Boy, I'll tell you what, when the devil gets to move it in our heart and our life, and he begins to try to convince us that God is withholding something good, that God is keeping something from us that we should be able to partake of, We too can fall into that same trap and fall into the spell of Satan that way and believe his lie, somehow question God's goodness toward us, can't we? Uh, You may have been there in your life, you may not have been, but I trust you never get there. But the fact is, is that God never withheld the tree to punish Adam and Eve at all. He held it back to protect them. And so often we stand on the shore of life and we look over the world and we see all that it has to offer and let's not, be, let's not be disillusioned about this. Let's not be ignorant. The world does have something to offer. And we've got to be honest with ourselves and we have to recognize and realize that there is some glit and glamour that there is on the, at least the surface. It appears to be something that's worth chasing after. But we too can be tempted to love what we see. You know, the devil is masterful at placing doubts in our minds concerning God's motives. And he would have us, again, believe that God is some kind of authoritarian leader who takes pleasure in withholding or, or somehow uh, re- withholding the best that he has and kind of wielding his sword of power and authority and saying, you're going to do what I tell you. I'm in charge, so just do what I say. And you know, in our culture today, that's not something that's too popular I mean, somebody that actually possesses authority and exhibits authority is often viewed in a very negative light. And the devil would have us to believe that his greatest desire, God's greatest desire, is to just simply bring us into subjection, to make our lives miserable, to just simply fulfill his every whim, his every desire. And may I say, if that was how God was, he still would have a right to do so. Because he created us. If he wanted to put us in prison camps, he would be right in doing so. If he wanted us all to live a life of pain and suffering, he'd be right in doing so. He's allowed to do as he pleases with what he creates. And we don't like to think that way because we think somehow that God is limited. But God's allowed to do whatever he wants with us. I think that that should automatically spark gratitude in our lives that he doesn't. I think somehow we've gotten the idea, and I felt a kink when I said a few things here, I get, we get the idea that God owes us something. That somehow He's not allowed to do with us as He pleases because that wouldn't be humane, that wouldn't be kind, that wouldn't be very, very cordial, that wouldn't be consistent with His character of love. May I say that God's allowed to do with us as He pleases. And you know what? We ought to be grateful for the goodness that God has bestowed upon us instead of somehow thinking we deserve it or He owes it to us. Probably that's why we lose our faith when we're in the midst of tragedy. Maybe that's why the loss of a loved one will turn our back on God. Maybe because when our marriages get difficult, we think God's abandoned us. Could it be because we think God owes us? You can tell I'm getting off the message because I felt like a little rabbit jumped up and I better follow it a while. John 15, 15 says, Henceforth I call you not servants, though. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. We better not take that for granted. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. You say, well, what, 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 a, what, what allows that to happen in our life? It's called grace, is it not? Last time I checked, grace is unmerited favor. Grace is something we don't deserve that we do get. Therefore, there's not one thing he just talked about that you deserve or I deserve. And yet, by his grace, he bestows it upon us. If you have any success in your Christian life, if you've enjoyed any part of your life, if you have anything good in your life, your family, your relationships, it is all grace. Every last bit of it, all grace. Again, the devil would have you believe that you and God are on opposite teams, but that's not true. His interests and yours are really not light years apart, but they are very close, I trust in nature. God would do anything that he could to help and meet our needs, there's no doubt about that. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, again, the psalmist, we mentioned it this morning, but he says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Well, that's the attitude of humility we ought to come to God with. I, I don't know, but I'm about ready to scrap the sermon because I feel like one of the problems we're having in our, our churches today, I'm not talking about the world, I'm talking about the churches, is a lack of humility. It's just, it just appears and seems to me that we have a lack of humility. It's so hard for anyone to bow the knee anymore. You say, I'll bow the knee to God, but don't ask me to bow the knee to a person. Well, then you're not truly a servant, nor are you really humble. It's an amazing thing. If you can't bow the knee to the least of humanity, then my friend, you aren't bowing the knee at all. We have deceived ourselves and have begun to believe lies because what we have done is elevated ourselves. But the Bible says that, that, that we need to humble ourselves. We need to die to self, crucify the flesh. Well, you start to love the world and you start to believe That not only God, but everybody else owes you something. The world, according to the Bible, will try and befriend you. It'll then go on to dominate you. And it'll seek to own you. The Bible says, we've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. I wonder, who would you prefer to be owned by? Would you rather be owned by God or be owned by the world? Because you will be owned by one or the other. You will do the bidding of one or the other. You'll be in subjection to one or the other. And so will I. The question is which. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the mid to late 1800s, said, The course of rebellion against God may be very gradual, but it increases in rapidity as you progress in it. And if you begin to run down the hill, the ever-increasing impetus will send you down faster and faster to destruction. I'm going to stop with what he's saying there but, and try to illustrate this. But how many of you have, been, have ever run down a hill? I remember being at our church picnics, and I always get a kick out of it. And it kind of bothers me, really, because I used to like this more than I do now. The older I get, the more I hate it. I'm always so protective of everybody and everything now. I'm just always nervous about everything. But I watched the little kids start to run down that hill. I mean, they're they're pointed down the hill. They want to get to the ball diamond. They want to get down there where the rest of the kids and the people are. And they take off running over that hill and down that hill they go and they go faster and faster and faster and faster and faster, faster, faster. And what happens? Boom, face plan. Right? Well, that's exactly what Charles Spurgeon is talking about here. That's, I mean, exactly what he's discussing and addressing when he says simply that And if you begin to run down the hill, the ever-increasing impetus will send you down faster and faster to destruction. You Christians ought to watch against the beginning of worldly conformity, he says. I do not believe that the growth of worldliness is like strife, which is as the letting out of water. Excuse me. He says, I do believe that the growth of worldliness is like strife, which is as the letting out of water. Once you begin, there's no knowing where you will stop. I sometimes get this question put to me, he says. I get this question put to me concerning certain worldly amusements. May I do so and so? That's the question. Well, may I do so and so? I am very sorry when any, whenever anyone asks me that question because it shows that there is something wrong or it would, be, or it would not be raised up at all. Isn't that interesting? Charles Spurgeon lived in, in, in the 1800s here, as, as I said earlier, I mean the, the, the mid to late 1800s. And all those years ago, he had the same questions. Well, can I wear this? Can I go here? Can I do that? He had the same problem I have, same problem any leader has. Same problem any person has that has any separation in their life. And they want to say, may I do so and so? And he says, I am very sorry whenever anyone asks me that question because it shows that there is something wrong or would not be raised at all. If a person's conscience lets him say, well, I can go to A, he will very soon go on to B. And C, D, E, and through all the letters of the alphabet. When Satan cannot catch us with a big sin, he'll try a little one. It does not matter to him as long as he catches his fish, what bait he uses. Beware of the beginning of evil, for many who bade fair to go right have turned aside and perished among the dark mountains in the wide field of sin. Now, Inside my suit there's a pocket. There's a pocket in my suit. I wonder what's in that pocket. I wonder if there's a young person maybe take a guess on what might be in there. What what do you think might be inside my suit pocket? What do you think? A what? No, that's in my right pocket. You saw someone hand me that, didn't you? Good try. Anybody else got any idea? Could there be any, what, money in there maybe? Maybe. Maybe there's a gift card in there. I don't know what could be in there. There might be a number of things in there. Hmm. I don't know. You know, the world has such a draw on each of us. The flesh is drawn to it and tempted continually. You know, Solomon chased the world and he came up empty, didn't he? Turn, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1. He says, "I said in mine heart, Go to now, I will prove thee with myrrh, therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. It's emptiness. I said of laughter, It is mad and of myrrh. what doeth it? I saw it in mine, own, in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do unto the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water wherewith the wood that I bringeth forth trees, that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great, uh, of, of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I get me men singers and women singers and the the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor, when I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Solomon chased the world and he came up empty. Solomon looked to pleasure to satisfy, but he found it to be vanity or empty. He looked to laughter and amusement, but he found it to be vanity. He found it to be empty. He looked to wine and foolishness, but he found it to be vanity or empty, Solomon built and he increased. He had servants and cattle, silver and gold, diamonds and rubies. He collected all kinds of things of every sort. He didn't just have an MP3 player or an iPod. He had his own orchestra, bands, and singers. I mean, he had notoriety and fame. He had, above all others, wealth and prestige and preeminence. He denied himself absolutely nothing. Whatever his eye desired was his. But when he began to view his life, when he began to evaluate his situation and his circumstance, he came to a very discouraging conclusion. He was coming up empty. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit and there was no profit under the sun. Many of you in the auditorium have heard of a woman by the name of Whitney Houston. You know, she chased the world. She came up empty. She sold more than 170 million albums Singles and videos. It made her one of the world's best-selling artists. She was America's darling at one point, but all that seemed to change. Her fame and her fortune didn't bring her the happiness that most of us would have thought it would. Instead, it subtly led her into a surreal life of drugs, immorality, irresponsibility, and ultimately self-destruction. You know, there's an article that covered her funeral and it stated... The service for the 48-year-old six-time Grammy Award-winning uh, winner and actress took place a week after she was found unresponsive in a bathtub at her Beverly Hilton Hotel in California. You know, that commentary paints a picture that's anything but glamorous. It doesn't matter whether it's a contemporary of our day or whether it's a biblical personality. Anybody that's chased the world has always come up empty. Always come up empty. I think of Lot. Boy, Lot chased the world and he came up empty. I think of Samson. Samson chased the world and he came up empty. I think of Balaam. He chased the world and he came up empty. Remember Haman? Haman. He thought Mordecai would hang on a gallow. Instead it would ultimately be him. May I say that he chased the world and he came up empty? Gehazi, he chased the world and he came up empty. I think of Judas. He chased the world and he came up empty. He could have followed Jesus Christ, but instead he chose to chase the world and he came up empty. I think of Ananias and Sapphira who chased the world and came up empty. May I say it doesn't matter what your name is, what your gender is, what your nationality is, what nation or national creed you have, my friend, I want you to know if you chase the world, you're going to come up empty. You always do. And the Lord says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world He's not saying that to withhold the goodness that the world has to offer. He's doing that to protect us from wasting our life on things that are temporal. I wonder what could be in this pocket tonight. Don't ruin the illustration. It's not tracks. You know, it gets to a place in our lives where things begin to intrigue us. We see the world and we start to think, wonder what that would offer me. I wonder how good that would be. I wonder how pleasurable that would be. I wonder, boy, I tell you what, that looks pretty good. And I say to somebody tonight, who wants to come up and take what's in the pocket? Who would like to see what's in that and have it for their very own? There's a lot of people probably go, sure, I'll take it. That'd be great. Any young people interested in taking what's in my pocket? Huh? Yeah, Alex is ready. Come on up, Alex. Some of you are going to wish you did, right? Or maybe you won't. Come on up. I'm not going to hurt you. All right. Now listen. We're talking about what's in the pocket. I want you to reach down there and tell me what's in the pocket. Nothing. 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 Can I tell you, that's exactly what the world has to offer you. It'll tempt you and it'll tell you that you're missing out on something. Oh, if only you could reach in and grab it. If only you could have what you're not allowed and it somehow convinces you the world does and the devil does that it's worth going after. Abandoning Christ and abandoning the word and abandoning your upbringing. Oh, go ahead, just run out in the world and grab all the guts so you can get. It's worth grabbing hold of. But when you go to grab, well, I promise you this. It'll be empty. Thank you. There'll be nothing there for you be empty. Oh, it may look good, but it can't deliver. It may appear good, but it doesn't deliver. It may spark the imagination, it may move our emotions, but it can't deliver. It's empty. Can you imagine living your life for the world only to come up empty in the end? I mean, especially when we know what this book teaches. And many of you have had the kind of teaching or upbringing that would would demand a a response of faith in your life. Him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. You know better, but yet you're tempted by the world. You're lured by the world. You find yourself reaching out to the world. And in the end, you go to grab hold of it and you hold on with your dear life only to find out when it's all said and done, there's nothing there. And that's how it'll be at the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. You know, we're given a picture of that judgment in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn there, would you please? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Man, the devil makes the world look so wonderful, so profitable, so good. And he makes, I mean, he makes the best of us think sometimes, I wish I could have that. Somehow thinking that that would solve our problem or that would meet our need or somehow would fulfill our desire and meet our satisfaction to satisfy us. But the truth is, it doesn't. It's going to leave you empty. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I trust you're on the foundation, that you know Christ is your Savior tonight. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now I'm glad that in the end, salvation is secure. I'm glad that I'm on my way to heaven no matter what. But when it comes to these issues, this aspect of rewards, that's not settled yet. See, how that turns out, how that all washes out, depends on how I walk in this life. It depends on what I focus my attention on, what I keep my eyes on, and what I do with what God has given me. Well, I'll tell you what, if I want to chase the world, the Lord will allow me to do so. Oh, he may chasten me and try to bring me back. But the fact is, is that ultimately, you know what? You're allowed to make your own decisions. But promise, I promise you this, you will live with the consequences of those decisions. I will live with the consequences of my decision. We live in a world today that that somehow as teaching our children there are no consequences for sin or bad behavior. That's evidenced by the fact that there's very little discipline in our world today. There's a lack of discipline amongst our children, our young people, our adults, and our seniors even in many cases. We cannot discipline ourselves. We cannot say no to ourselves. We can't make ourselves do anything. And the truth is, is that if we do something wrong, then everybody else ought to forgive us, or they're more wrong than doing what we did in the first place. Isn't that sad? Oh, I haven't lived my life the way I should, but I know God forgives, so you need to forgive me. And if you don't, then you're worse than me. Oh, really? Really? How pitiful is that philosophy? So ungodly. Where's the humility in that? Where's I'll take it like a man? No, you ain't taking nothing. You're dishing it out when you should be taking it. Man, you ought to humble yourself and say, whatever I get, I deserve. And if any mercy comes my way, thank God for it. Whatever happened to that attitude? Again, we are in a society that teaches um, that we are owed everything. We deserve everything. The judgment seat of Christ is coming. And if you choose, or I choose, to chase the world, we're going to come up empty. We're going to lose those rewards. We're going to have nothing to cast at the feet of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Over what? A few years of pleasure? A lifetime of pursuing frustration, stress? I mean, I'm telling you, I mean, if you're going to do anything with your life, it's going to cost you something. That's all there is to it. You don't build a business without taking a ton of hours and working very diligently. You don't build churches without taking a ton of hours and working very diligently. You don't, you don't uh, make a lot of money in this world, usually, unless you're very fortunate, uh, without working a lot of hours and putting in a lot of effort. I mean, it's going to cost you something. Everything costs something. But don't get caught in a position where one day you get to the judgment seat of Christ and you find you're empty because you chase the world. Don't do it. Stay faithful to Christ. Keep on going for the Lord. 1 John 2:28 says, 2 verse 28 says, and now little children abide in him that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. The world's offering you something. It's saying go ahead. Reach in. Go after it. You say, wow. It looks good. I bet you there's a lot there. I want to. I want that. And we start to reach and we go after it. And we're going to come up empty. The devil wants you to come up empty. He wants you to waste your life on temporal things. He wants you to neglect souls, and he wants you to neglect that which is eternal. He wants you to focus on the here, the now. He wants you to get caught up in life, the world's life. Listen, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with enjoying life. I'm just saying he wants you to focus your attention on it. Can I warn you, if you're having children now, do not make your children your God. Can I warn you that are getting married? Do not make your spouse your God. Maybe you've got a career and you've worked very diligently to get that career. Do not allow your career to be your God. Can I warn pastors tonight? Don't let your church become your God. Your ministry, your God. Listen, any of us, all of us are prone to this. The devil wants us to focus our full attention on this here and now. On life today. And neglect him and neglect the future. May I say there's much more to live our lives for than now. And if you'll chase the world, you will come up empty. It will let you down. The world promises what it can't deliver. So don't get caught chasing it. Instead, chase him. See, the devil is a liar. Just like he lied to Eve, he'll lie to you. Don't don't chase the world. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. You know what? You'll be better off for it. We are a blessed people as believers. God has given us so much. But even in him giving us so much, we can find ourselves neglectful. We fail to remember that. We chase the world. In 2020, what will you chase? Will you chase the world? Or will you chase after Christ? What will you set your focus on and your eyes on? Will it be on the world or on the Lord? You can go to church and still be chasing the world. Don't get, don't believe somehow because you've done some good things that that makes up for the things you're not doing. Don't let that happen to you. Putting the notes away. So you can do that before I start the altar call. Chasing the world. Do you know somebody that's chased the world? Do you? Do you know somebody that's chasing the world? I got to admit there are some times that we look at those that are chasing the world and it looks pretty good. Things are going pretty well for them. And that can really make it tough on us, just like the psalmist in chapter 73 who said his feet were well-nigh slipped because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. But don't believe the lie. There's pleasure in sin for for a season. It doesn't last forever. And you're going to come up empty. You better give yourself wholeheartedly to Jesus, to the Lord that saved your soul. The one who really cares about you. You'll never regret that. He want what's—he wants only what's best for you. Don't let the devil deceive you into believing that God just wants to withhold the best. He doesn't. He wants you to have the best. So trust the Lord with it. Don't chase the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Love him. Hold on to him. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time we've had, Lord, just a simple time in the word. We pray, Lord, that you'd be glorified in it. Lord, how sad is it to watch young men and young ladies, older men and ladies chase the world only to come up empty? How many of our loved ones, family and friends have chased the world and the world's caught up to them in a sense. They've come up empty. They didn't get what they wanted. They got something quite different indeed. Lord, may we choose to chase you to follow after you, to strive for the the gospel's sake. God, give us grace and mercy even tonight. Lord, may we cast ourselves at your feet, humbling ourselves before you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed.